You're listening to Two Guys Talking Wine with Michael Pincus and Andre Pru. Hello, Michael. Andre, it's so nice to hear your voice. Do you know what day of the week it is? No. Yeah. Not a clue. I've been I've been in Italy too long at the moment. Uh, I I think it's some day during the week. Yeah, it's Sunday. Yeah. I, I thought you were working today. <laughs> you work on Sundays occasionally, don't you? No, nope, not normally. Um but anyways, oh. I thought I would just give you a quick call, see how you were doing, make sure you hadn't been arrested by the uh, Italian police yet. Um, have no, you, been- you know what? I'll tell you something really neat that I uh, that I tried today. Tried two things that I I think I should tell you about. One was a limoncello made with mandarin orange. Oh, so did that taste a little bit sweeter than the regular limoncello? Never had that before. It was great. Well, that definitely sounds yeah. like it's uh, maybe maybe your taste in hard liquor is finally uh, finally maturing. Maybe you're finally maturing, and maybe you'll put away the Doctor McGillicuddy next time we do a, a, a bourbon tasting. Think, think of it as orangina with booze in it. That sounds delicious. And then t- then tonight, I also tried an olive oil made from thousand year old trees from a, a winery called Moretti Omergo. Thousand year old olive oil trees. This is like tomato leaf. It's interesting. Yeah, we'll definitely talk about that when you get back. But I'm here to talk to you about what I've been doing while you're gone. Um, yeah, what are you up to now? Well, I had a chance to sit down with Lenz Moser. Do you know who that is? Yes, I do. He makes Rieslings. He also makes Cabernet Sauvignon in China. Stop it. Yep. And Should we really be talking about anything coming from China at the moment? Um, the the proof was in the pudding, and I had Lens and Andrew Von Teichman, our, our uh, friend of the podcast, uh, in the Toronto studio, and I got to taste some very tasty Chinese wines. So uh, here's how that interview sounded. All righty. Michael is in Tuscany right now, and he has left me to myself. I usually have a, a, a co-host with me here, and I am joined by two guests. Uh, Andrew Von Heichmann, it's your second visit to the studio. Indeed. And I'm always like hesitant to say your last name because you you have a last name that is tough to pronounce. I think even Michael said it wrong on a podcast a couple episodes ago with uh, Teichman. Can you just set the record straight on the pronunciation of your last name? Teichman. Yeah, because I was right. Yeah. Okay. But it I'm, doesn't, I'm read, usually it, right it doesn't spell like that very nicely, but... And uh, I've got Len here. Lens. Lens. Okay. Alien Z. Alien Z. Z, And if people haven't picked up already, you've got a little bit of an accent. Yes. So you come to us from... Austria. But you're here to talk about... China. There we go. So <laughs> how's that to hook you into the podcast? Germany, Austria, China. Yeah. In Canada. Yeah. And the, uh, we've got the wines. These rolled through the LCBO in January for the Chinese New Year. It's the Chateau Changyu Moser 15. And it's, it's, I guess we'll start at the beginning. Like, what's it, Changyu Moser? Where, where does the name come from for the, for the winery? Uh, Changyu is the, the largest and the oldest and I, I believe the best winery in China. And uh, we teamed up together with my name, Moser. And 15 stands for 15 generations of Moser family in the same village, in the same spot, winemaking for 410 years now. So your family's been at it for a little while? Yes. That's great. Yeah. So I, I, I guess I'll, I'll, like I'll start sort of really simple. What's it like making wine in China? It's different. Okay. It's different in more than one ways because China is a different planet. China has um, is not just far away. It's it's different people. The language is a huge barrier. The mentality is the next one, and um, the, the the rewarding thing for me is that people in China are willing to listen to me, and to what I bring to the party, and they are learning very very fast, and this is exciting for me. Well, in Europe, I come from Europe. You know, Austria, protected little country, yeah. not so super important. A little bit laid back, uh, you could uh, call it saturated as well. And China is full of energy, full of ambition. And, and this is really refreshing to work with these people. 
That's that's interesting. So uh, I, I guess maybe we'll break it down because you you went through all the different elements of what makes China different. But first off, like where exactly is the winery, and what sort of climate are we looking at for making wine? And uh, I guess while you're talking about that, Andrew, what's the first wine? Maybe we should uh, taste through while we're talking about it. Well, I think we have to go with the white. With the white right here. Okay. Yeah. I'll pour up. I'll let Lens yeah. talk it here. Yeah, yeah. Let's, let's, so, so where is the winery located exactly? The winery is located in a in a province called Ningxia. Okay. Which is the uh, the number one province for quality wine in China. You can call it the Napa Valley of of China to give you a, a well known analogy, and it's about twelve hundred kilometers west of Beijing. Uh, directly south of Mongolia, okay, and it's at, at an elevation of 1,100 meters. Okay, it gives us 3,000 sunshine hours, continental climate, and uh, uh, it's for me it's it's an ideal wine growing region because it ticks all the right boxes when it comes to climate, to soil, um, and 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 the human factor as well let alone uh, that I'm working from a beautiful chateau with all the, the very, very best techno- technology you can dream of. So it's all state-of-the-art. Okay. Um, what, is, what are the... Like, so we've got high elevation, uh, so proximity to Mongolia. I think when we picture Mongolia in our head, we think of a climate that's quite desolate, and I imagine it being cold. Like, what is the what are the growing conditions? Yeah, like? the growing conditions are ideal in the summer okay. or during the growing growing season from April to to, to October. So we we, we have pr- practically the same uh, time to grow the, the the grapes as in as in Europe. But um, uh, the 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 beauty is through elevation. It's it's high up and. We get these warm nights, ah, sorry, these warm days and and these cool nights. So during the day in the summer, typically you have between 30 and 35 Celsius, and during the night it goes down below 20. Okay. That means we can uh, retain the freshness in, 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 in the wine as well. This is absolutely fantastic because in order to enjoy a full bottle of wine with two people, you need the freshness. If yes. it gets too lame, too acidic, uh, too, too, too jammy, then you know you cannot finish a bottle. And and this is my dream, um, to make wines, and it always has been in my life, to make wines which are fresh, elegant, and a little bit racy. Then you you can finish a bottle because a, a bottle between two people is not too much. And uh, what are the soils like? The soils are basically uh, loamy, sandy soils with a okay. little bit of rock every now and then. Okay. And it's all done in, 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 in the flatland because we cannot move into the mountains because in the winter through continental climate we have minus 25. So we need to bury the wines. It's very, okay. very important in order not to, to let them die. You've heard that before. Yeah, yeah, that, definitely. And, and therefore, uh, this is the only hardship we have. But at least I can say we have four months of uninterrupted sleep for the wine. And as soon as we unbury them, but break takes place within a week, and everything's good. So when you un, un well, I, I guess first of all, like, how do you bury the vines? Like, what are you using to bury? bury well, first the of vines? all, we don't grow the the vines, uh, you know, standing upright yep. uh, as in Europe. Uh, we grow them at forty five degrees, okay, to the ground, so we we can bend them easily down by hand, and then a plow comes, uh, plows it in, and then a shovel comes, and then it's it's really buried, mm-hmm. and that's it. And um, I guess, well, when were the vines planted? The vines were planted between 10 and 20 years. Okay, so we're talking about 10 and 20-year-old vines. Like yes. those, those stumps are starting to get a little bit thicker. Like, is, is it difficult to work no, them by not, hand? Or not, they no, still... not at all. Not, not at all. Not at all. And do you have to worry about damage from the, the, uh, the tractors coming in and burying them? Or do you have to worry about... No, uh, it, it's skilled workers. Uh, and burying is not the problem. Okay. Because it's uh, that's easy, but to unbury it's mm. everything by hand. You you cannot use any machines because any machines would destroy uh, the vine. So you do it with with you know with a with a shovel and that's it basically. It's pretty primitive, but that's oh, what it I is. Mean, I, I don't know if you're familiar with Prince Edward County, which is uh, two hours east to the city yeah. of Toronto, and uh, they were mainly Pinot Noir and Chardonnay, uh, and they have to bury their vines in the winter. Yeah. Um, but it sounds like like the the 
the growing season might be a little bit more ideal than in Canada because even in Prince Edward County, they run the risk of late frost. And we're talking about sometimes in early May or mid-May. Where no, we that, get, that, uh, that's what we don't thing. have. Uh, I'm really glad, glad to report that, you know, once it's unburied, then, you know, it's, it's like heaven for a winemaker because <laughs> it doesn't rain during the growing season. So we have to irrigate. And, and as a result, we, we can produce exactly what we want. So it's, 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 it's almost perfect conditions, unless climate, uh, climate change you know, it takes more leaps than it has done in the past. Well, before we get to, I guess, potential for, for climate change, what we've got in our glass right now is a Cabernet Sauvignon Blonde Noir uh, 2018. And I have a spittoon in front of me because I'm all about being professional, even though it's after hours right now. Uh, but I can't spit this wine out. The uh, the texture and the weight of this wine, and it's got, like, I know it's, it's coming through, it looks like it's got like a tinge of, of salmon to it, but it, it's not, you're calling it Blonde Noir, it's not really a rosé. Um, but I mean, this is something like, it's got me imagining summer. And the, the best thing about this wine is it's, it's got that, that, that freshness, it's got the weight, so there's definitely a bit of heat on this, but great acidity on the finish, and just a little bit of like the um, the texture of this wine lets it linger. Uh, what can you tell me about the wine? I mean, you well, made it. <laughs> uh, I made it uh, for a reason because I work at at the chateau with 100% Cabernet Sauvignon grapes, and when you okay. want to export to Europe, uh, you need something like a white because that's what people expect from you, but I don't have any vines, any vineyards under vines with white wine grapes. And therefore, I came up with the idea of a white Cabernet Sauvignon, yeah, um, which has a double effect because the white Cabernet is pure innovation, at least in Europe, it's completely unique. I'm the first and, and the only one producing it and bringing it to the market in Europe. So that makes it very, very special to people. Uh, then it tastes very, very nice, as you just uh, elaborated. And mm. as a double whammy, it makes my red wines even better because I dejuice the red wines to the tune of about 10%. And uh, I get more concentration in the reds and I get my white Cabernet. So I'm, I'm, I'm really happy with this situation. Huh. So um, how many acres do you have? Uh, how many acres of vines do you have planted? We have planted uh, 250 hectares, and we produce 600,000 bottles. Okay. And the beauty is, of course, I produce more than I than I bring to the bottle, but the deal is with Changyu that uh, what I don't need goes back home to the mothership, and I only use the very, very best lot. So this is a luxury very, very few winemakers in the world have. Okay, so what do you mean mothership? The mothership is Changyu, because I only do the, the, the winemaking and the, the, the whole management of the chateau of one of their eight chateaus. So okay. Changyu has okay. eight chateaux, and I do only one, and it's the crown jewel of, of Changyu. It's their best wine, and hence we, were, we decided to bring this to the world. Okay, so when you're saying 600,000 bottles... Yes, this is just for Chengyu yes, yes, Moser yes, 15? Yes, yes, absolutely. So yeah. what is the production of Chengyu total? It's about 100 million bottles in, in, oh. in terms of wine. And it's about 50 million bottles of uh, brandy. Wow. It, also in brandy, Chengyu uh, is market leader. And they make beautiful cognac-type brandy in, in China. And they're by far the number one also in brandy. We've talked a bit about the total production of the of the mothership. Um, what, like, obviously doing business in China, like for the Chinese market, is definitely different from doing here. Something I can't really imagine, given that it's a, a different sort of government than it is here. But are there a lot of wineries in China making wine, or is it kind of all run through this run through Chengyu? No, 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 no. Uh, Chengyu is the biggest fish in the pond. Yes. But uh, it's just one out of a thousand wineries in China. And mind you that China is already the seventh largest wine producer in the world with an acreage of roughly, uh, or I should say just under 2000 hectares, which is double the size of Germany, double the size of Bordeaux. So it's, it's a respectable uh, um, wine producer already and it's growing. 
So let's get another wine in the in the glass. I have a feeling this is going to be a, a, a long podcast. I have so many questions, and especially if the wines are of this uh, of this quality, that there's a lot to talk I, about. I had it already. So. Yeah, yeah. So, so. so I know these are the wines working for export, and you're obviously working for the the crown jewel. You want to make sure that, uh, especially when you're an emerging wine region, you're putting your best foot forward. What's it like dealing with the domestic market in in China, and and how have, I, know, I know the Chinese have very much fallen in love with Bordeaux. They have money invested in California. They've definitely fallen in fallen in love with regions that produce big red wines. And I know uh, the color red holds a lot of significance in the culture as well. Uh, what's it like dealing with the domestic market? Well, for us, uh, the the purpose, my purpose, is not just to bring these wines to the world, but to bring China back their pride in their own wine production, which was not the case in the past. Because uh, like in every other European country, let's say after World War II, this is uh, what my father always tells me, the wine industry was dominated by mass production and not quality production. And the same uh, is true for China, although the beauty about China is they're learning very fast and they're changing very fast. But we are the first chateau to bring China back um, their pride uh, in their own wines. And I've, I've, I've just completed an 18-month tour through China with 28 cities, no city smaller than 8 million people. 8 million because Austria has 8 million people. Uh, and so yeah, I insisted, we, I there isn't even a city in Canada. Yeah, yeah. I don't even think there's 8 million people around yeah. the Golden Horseshoe unless no. you're really stretching far. It's crazy. And, and this was so exciting to see uh, and to look in people's eyes uh, when you when you introduce these wines, when you taste the wines with them, they are completely surprised and they, they turn around and say, hey, now I have a wine from China I can drink. Uh, so this is really very re- rewarding for me and very motivating to you know increase the quality year after year, uh, also for the Chinese market. Because what we do in essence is a chateau and we have the same quality of wine for Europe, for the rest of the world, and for China. So there's only one bottling, one label, and that's it. So we don't have any any variations, sweeter, sour, whatever. No, it's just one blend because this is a wine for the for, made for the world and also for China. Um, what's in my glass right now? You have in the glass uh, the Chateau Changyumosa 15 Helen Mountain Cabernet Sauvignon, the red. This is the twin brother of the white because that's the, the one who did bleed to the tune of 10% uh, for the white Cabernet, and hence I, I get a little bit more concentration than usual. And the beauty about this wine, or I should say the speciality, is the wine is not manipulated by any form of wood. So this no is- No wood in this. No zero. This is the pure and, and stainless steel uh, result of, of very gentle processing, fermentation, and then subsequently blending. And it's only possible because we have something very, very special in Ningxia, which I always call the smallest Cabernet Sauvignon berries in the world due to the desert climate. The, 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 the grape, the berries protect themselves being small and with thick skins, yes. and that gives the winemaker and El Dorado an abundance of, of possibilities to play with the quality. Yeah, it's really it's really interesting. I, I would have not guessed that this hadn't seen any any oak because there are quite a few savory elements. Yeah. Like it, it does yeah. have a bit of smokiness, yeah. but not too much. Like we're talking a hint, uh, really strong cocoa, and quite a bit of tannin. So I'm guessing you you probably press this maybe a little bit harder than if you had planned on putting it in oak. No, not at all. Okay. No, it, no, it's classic. It's uh, uh, as a as a matter of fact, we use very little press wine. Okay. In all of our wines, it's just a tiny bit of of blending component because we have so much tannin. If I use too much uh, press wine, it gets too bitter. So those, those tannins just exist from the natural conditions. From natural from the small condition, berries. Condition, from the small berries and. And, and the only thing I have to make sure is that I get the healthy grapes into the crushing and then in, into the fermenter, uh, and, and that's it. And, 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 and to get the, 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 the phenolic and the sugar ripeness in, in parallel, 
So that's a little bit of an art, uh, and you have to work very hard in the vineyards because uh, as global warming progresses, you know, the sugar jumps and, and phenolics are always a little bit behind. And therefore, this is the only hardship we have, but uh, you know, but with a little bit of experience, you can do that. No, it's a really interesting uh, interesting wine. I, I just had to flip the bottle to see what the alcohol is on the back because it's it's 14.5% on the bottle. Um, it doesn't feel like a warm it wine. Feel. It certainly doesn't feel like California. It has a really great acid backbone, so it's really remarkable that you've been able to hold that acidity while getting those those sugars to ferment. Like that's Absolutely. really remarkable. But this is the altitude. This is the beauty of, of you know having hot days for, for for good ripening and then cool nights for for the grape to to recover and not to breathe all the acidity out of the out of the berry. Okay. It's very, very important. So when it would be hot at night as well, forget it. You know, then it would be too warm. So what's the next wine to uh, next wine to taste? The next wine to taste is uh, Chateau Changyu Mosa 15 Mosa family. This is the first wine aged in barrique in these small French oak barrels. The when you say small, you're talking 225s? 225s, yes. Uh, we're going to experiment, by the way, with uh, 300 and 500 uh, liter barrels as well. As seems to be the uh, case virtually everywhere on the yeah, planet right Yeah, absolutely. Now. I'm not so sure because when you taste also this wine and then the next wine, the Grauba, our wines take the wood extremely well without being the wood being a spike in the taste profile. So, but I'm, I'm, I'm testing and tasting it because I have to as a winemaker, uh, because winemaking is also, we're a little bit in the fashion business, just the fashion cycles are much longer. Okay. My, my grandfather always told, taught me and told me um, the, the cycle in winemaking is uh, every, th every th 15 to 20 years, there's the big boom on reds or whites. It, it, it just goes in waves. And at the moment, we're heading towards the white wine boom again after red wine. And hence, uh, you know, I had also the white Cabernet to be made. This, this was, for me, it was a must. I cannot just run a chateau just on red wines. Well, I mean, it's also interesting that um, you're running a chateau on one grape. Uh, you have just Cabernet Sauvignon planted. Surely, has there been any thought or conversation about planting something else? Um, Except like Chardonnay might do well in the climate and those soils, uh, Sauvignon Blanc maybe, or even the other Bordeaux partners that might be good well, blending components? Uh, classic question, thank you. Uh, but to date, I'm the only winemaker in the world to make a red, a white, and a rosé from Cabernet Sauvignon. This is okay. the only, only <laughs> crazy chateau who does that, but I, that's all I have. Uh, but we have planted already uh, Merlot, uh, and they are now in their 10th year, as we have also planted Shiraz, also in their 10th year. So we are going to use in our our next blends in for the next vintages, not the ones on the table. We can use these two. And as for the whites, um, you know, I started in 2015 with winemaking altogether. So I, I just tried to get my arm around the specialities of a, of a desert climate winemaking. And um, after my fifth vintage now in 2019, uh, we've decided to go white as well, and I'm really proud to say that I'm bringing uh, back to China the first Grunewaldliner cuttings okay. uh, to be planted in May this year uh, to see if this works. And I can answer your question, everything works in Ningxia because we have neighboring vineyards, they are testing Sauvignon Blanc, they are testing Chardonnay, they are testing all the other grape varieties on the red wine side. Uh, and on the whites, so it's it's for me it's 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 the promised land when it comes to winemaking because you can grow everything. This this wine is really interesting. It must be fun to pour this. I, I don't know if Andrew got a chance to pour this blind for any psalms, but like it's got like some of the characteristics I expect from California is that it takes the wood really well. Like it's got some of that pencil shaving kind of cedar yeah. right on the nose that can be sticking right out there in California, but the rest of it really feels a little bit more Bordeaux in, in style, a little bit more restrained, not the jammy fruit, but like really just kind of ripe and, and got a little bit of tartness to it. And the acid backbone is really fantastic on this really tasty wine. And this is the point. I don't want to be put into the Bordeaux yes. or in the California or in the Chile or in the Tuscany. But, it, but, it, but it's, hard, it's hard to not make the comparison. No, no, right? no, no. Yes, but I don't want to be pick, uh, you know, directed towards one of these corners. 
I, I just want to be in between for the time being. And then uh, once we, we, we mastered our winemaking and, and got to know the area well enough, then we will, will try to find, out, find something which is typical for the region. Like if you smell a glass of Bordeaux, you know immediately it's Bordeaux. If you smell a glass of Chile, you know it's Chile for its fruit authenticity. And the same, we're working here in, in, in China, in Ningxia and at the Chateau in particular. I want more typicity in the future. Copying is not my thing. And copying is not the Chinese thing anymore as well. They, they have, have enough self-esteem now to go their own way. And that's why we are great partners. Um, so out of the, the 600,000 bottles you're making, how much of it is for export? 50-50. At okay. the moment, yes, 50-50. And when you're selling something like this, the the Moser 15 family Cab Sauv in China, are you like do the does the Chinese market have access to a lot of wines from outside of China to develop their own wine knowledge? No, no, for sure. I mean, uh, about 50%, this latest statistics, 50% of China wine consumption is 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 imported wine now. Okay. And this went up from 10% 10 years ago to 50%. So you might answer the question why this is. And it's very simple. Uh, ex imports have been better and lower priced than the home market. And I think it's great for the China wine industry. And this, this is also why I am doing this at the Chateau, to prove the point that China itself can, can produce quality uh, you know, belonging in the company of the world's finest, and and that's the challenge here, and that's what we're proving already successfully. And is is it, is it strange for you when you wake up and you go to work and you realize that you're in China and not in Austria or somewhere else in Europe making wine? Uh, no, at all. No, no. I, I I used to travel the world my entire life, and now I go more to China than to the U.S. or to to Europe, and I just love it because. Yeah. Think of it. When do you get a chance to help to put the country on the map? And this is exactly what we're doing with this chateau because we were the first three years ago to go international. We are now distributed in 40 countries around the globe. Nobody else is even close uh, to this number or even exporting at all because most wineries in China don't export. So um, what I'm trying to, to, to do here is, 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 is this one of my purpose is to, to help China not just to, to get them uh, excited about their own wines in China itself, but to put China on the global wine map. China is so big uh, in terms of, of population, so it'll be, before we know, the biggest consumer of wine. So why doesn't China also export some of its, its, its uh, production? Why not? Now, I, I know when you're talking about uh, Chinese, and especially from the, the business standpoint when it comes to wine, um, it can be a little bit difficult to get people receptive to it. I think a lot of people would be critical of Chinese investment in China. I know also in Niagara, um, I don't need to say specifically who, but we've had situations where Chinese investors have come in and essentially destroyed the reputations of some wineries with really great reputations. Do you... Do you find it when you're introducing these wines to certain markets, people are just very skeptical to taste to taste them, or even once they taste them, are still skeptical to receive the fact that they're of high quality? Uh, I think the, exactly the opposite is the case because in the wine industry, what I discovered my entire career, people are curious because we don't have these huge marketing budgets like the whiskey people or the spirits people all together. So we, we work on the novelty factor. We work on surprise. We, we, we work on innovation. We work on, on different marketing techniques than all these other guys. And so as a result, of course, uh, you know, I, I know that nobody's waiting for me in the world. Yeah, But when I'm there, when I'm sitting in front of people and um, I get meetings with each and every one I want around this globe because, you know, my name is known and China is, is the draw as well because it, people are curious. And then when I pop the cork and then they are surprised and the rest is, 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 is smiling. So it's, it's relatively easy for me to put this on the map. But what's not so easy to make sure that year after year we make a better wine to keep surprising people. So that's my spiel, if you like. Cool. Uh, let's get another wine in the wine in the glass here. Now we take the Grava. Yeah, this is the flagship to date. 
It's again a 16. It's my second vintage. Um, so wait, when was your first vintage? Uh, 15. 2015. 15. Okay. Yeah, so I'm I'm a baby here. Okay. Uh, but when I talk about the future and 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 getting better, I know what's in the barrels. I know what's in the tanks. Um, up to 19 vintage, which we've done already. And I can promise out of the three unknown vintages, uh, 17, 18, and 19, at least two of the vintage are, vintages are going to be blockbusters and will be far better than what we have on the table today. It's very safe to say, unless I screw up in the cellar, which I hope not. I don't know. Lots of times for stuff to go wrong. I've seen it happen. I think yeah, you've seen it, it happen too. It can happen. It can, yeah. can happen. It can, it can happen. happen. But, uh, you know, winemaking is not a one-man show. I'm, I have a great team. So we have five people. And uh, because I'm, I'm, I'm at the winery only there uh, about three months a year, five trips in total, six weeks at, at the harvest. Uh, but I, the team takes care in, in an exceptional way. So, so you're, you, have a, you have a team of local workers yes, in, yes, in yes. China who no, are local, handling... Local experts. And, okay. and, and, and even one lady, she, she got a degree in Montpellier in France. Okay. In winemaking and had a year, uh, one year in Geisenheim in Germany. So she knows her stuff. She's young. She's energetic. She's ambitious. And Mr. Fan is is my right hand in at the winery as well. He's a super guy, um, and then the vineyard manager and the others. It's it's really a great team. So I, I have all the confidence that they know what they have in the cellar, and they treat it accordingly. This is a really neat wine. I've never tasted anything like this before, and. Um, like the nose is very sweet. Like it smells like sponge toffee, but it's not unexpected. Like it, it, it definitely is showing some influence from oak, but it's really well integrated. Like it's not obtuse and sticking out there. It's mingled in with some blue fruit, some black fruit. The tannin is super soft and well integrated. Mm -hmm. And the aging potential on this is, I'm guessing 20 years, yeah. if you like it young. I mean, it'll definitely go longer. I know I've said on this podcast many times, I still want my wines to taste young, fruity, and vibrant. I don't like to wait 40 years to drink drink sherry. If I do that, I would just buy sherry. But you know, Michael and I have had our, our disagreements about that. Uh, and the price on this is 134.95, And it's exactly like you've said. It's, it's definitely Cabernet Sauvignon. It's definitely not Chile. It's definitely not California. And it's not Bordeaux. But it's showing certain elements yeah. of, of of each of it. Like this is really really interesting. Who's yeah. who's who's buying this and how much of this do you make? We make fifty thousand bottles. Okay, half of it goes to China. The rest okay. is in Europe. And and it's 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 buying wine lovers basically, uh, and wine lovers in a store like Herod's or Hedonism in England or KDV in Germany or Globus in Switzerland, whatever, you name it. We're all in the top stores and also in top gastronomy. And if we're lucky uh, and if we find enthusiasts, they even call about the, the, this, this wine. So that means it's by the glass as well in, in some really nice places in, Man, in the London. The Corvin's been really great for yeah. for business like this, eh? Yep, yeah. absolutely. And it's actually when we had 30 cases come in of this wine yeah. and then three or four weeks it's gone. All gone. Yeah, Blanc de Noir gone, family gone. Uh, how many And how many bottles of the Grand Vin came through? Uh, so we 36 packs, so... 180, 180 and bottles. It's uh, gone. Is it gone? gone. It's all gone. Yeah, there's within there's within weeks. Weeks. Yep. So it was launched a couple of weeks ago. So it's gone. Well, I guess maybe if I can just ask Andrew a couple of questions here mm. is uh, like, have you had a chance to, to ask who's buying the market locally? Yeah, we're we're uh, we've been w watching it since it launched, and it's only been three four weeks since it launched. We have two flagship stores that focus on. Asian products north of the city of Toronto, store 590 and store 703. Yeah, those are stores. in Markham? Yep. Okay. Uh, so we've, you know, there was a good uh, establishment of product there and we did some work with the store to familiarize them with the wines. But e-com has been very strong. The Grand Vin sold best on e-com, lcbo.com, which is where we sold most of it. So speaking to collectors that are online and looking for interesting new things, that's where... They found it, I think. Well, well, I know for someone like mm -hmm. like myself, like I'm, I'm curious to try new things because I still feel like uh, I have a lot to learn in terms of my wine knowledge. I'm unapologetic about that, but like I said, I would be skeptical to buy a Chinese wine site unseen. 
when you're talking about Markham and those destination stores, there's a larger Chinese community in Markham yep. than virtually everywhere else. Is this a winery that already has a reputation among the Chinese community in Canada? I, I don't think so yet. I no, think no, zero, the whole zero. point of, of this trip with Lens coming to Canada for the first time and really launching for the first time in North America is to establish a starting point for wine from China, premium, ultra premium wine from China. You know, when I first met Lens in California at a trade show, you know, we met and he invited me to uh, what he called China Night in, in Germany at uh, Pro Wine. And I didn't really know Lens outside of a coffee at this conference and then went and, and he got up with 70 people in a room and said, you know, here are my wines on this side of the bar. And on the other side of the bar is Opus One and Sasakaya and so on and so on. And he said, I'm not pretending that my wines are of that quality, but that's where we're going. And that's that's my goal. That's my vision. I thought, wow, that's like to set the put the gauntlet down like that and say that's where I want to go. But it's it, you know it's, it's fantastic. It's, but it's, it's when you're talking about ultra premium, like that mm-hmm. is a great way yeah. to frame it. And I think those are great wines that you would have chose to put side by side. Is this of the quality of Opus One or Sazakaya? I'm not sure. But are you guys playing the same game? Most definitely. And I mean, when we're talking about about wines over a hundred dollars the, the group of people willing to spend that money is very small and once again we've discussed on this podcast i'm of that ilk but that's once or twice a year so for you to get more than a hundred dollars from me you really need to wow me and i'll be honest uh, 134 dollars if i had a little bit more money and i was buying a few more hundred dollars this would be a really cool thing to add yeah. to your cellar really cool thing to add to your cellar and, and it's good wine it's it's good wine um I guess uh, one question, just because I have to nerd out about it. You're using natural corks on these? We knew we use, for the most part of the top wines, we use natural corks, for okay. sure. And then for the Helen Mountain tier, we use twin top. Okay. So Those are the, two, the like, um, like, like champagne, composite corks? Like, like, yeah, composite. And then, you know, it's plated with the real cork uh, on both ends. That's why we call it twin tops. Okay. It's like like the champagne uh, bottles. They, are, they also have, have this... Uh, real uh, the, the the cork plates as well. Is there a reason you've chosen to go with uh, more natural closure as opposed to something like a screw cap, especially at the volumes that you're producing? Yes, for sure. Uh, first of all, uh, we are Chateau and we are catering also to a very conservative market in China. And I didn't want to have screw cap in Europe and, and this in China. But uh, increasingly, the environmental issues to me play a much more a much bigger role as well i think cork is the more natural closure and i i love cork anyway i love the conservative pop of the bottle it signals quality and 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 a way of life and um in the future we 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 do also we replace the the capsules with uh, with the paper seal in order to be more eco-friendly and we we're going to to use glass which uh, bottles which are about 20% lighter than they are today in order to you know do our contribution to a cooler world and there's more because we're going uh, biodynamic in the vineyards as of this year this is a process for the next couple of years this is not going to happen overnight but uh, that's also something, and and there's more more to to the whole program to become much more eco friendly. Very important. I, I definitely think it's important, and uh, I don't want to single anybody out, but the weight of some of the glass, um, and I'm more than willing to call out California, the weight of the glass being used by some wineries in California is full on obnoxious and, uh, I guess irresponsible in terms of being eco friendly to the planet, and completely unnecessary. You can get very nice bottles at a decent weight. And I understand that when you're putting a package together, branding and marketing is important. And if you go too light, the market will respond to that. But you need to find that balance. Yeah, but there are certain markets like in Europe, in the UK, if, if, if I show my lineup to Chantis Robinson, the first question is, is, Lens, when are you going to use lighter bottles? It happened in July this year, yeah. last year again. And I'm sure it's going to happen again this year because I'm not quite there. But I promise in 2021, she will be pleased because then I I will come prepared. But but Jancis also isn't the person who's buying all your bottles. It's a completely fair yeah, question. But she's it's a, a fair question to yeah, ask. 
Yeah, but yeah, yeah. But she's a trendsetter and she has her, 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 her hand on the pulse. Uh, and I, I really appreciate that encouragement from her okay. because um, she talks to a lot of people and she knows what's going to happen in five to ten years. And, uh, you know, the monopoly in Sweden is imposing the same thing as I think the monopoly here with lighter glass. And I, I welcome this because we are not in the glass business. We're in the wine business. And that's what, you know, some people really sometimes confuse. And in China, I tell you what, I had my, my echo meeting with the CEO of the company this year. And the toughest thing to get through was the lighter glass because it's macho there, you know, oh, you know, big bottles well, in yeah, China as well. And I said, well, um, and, and Chang Yu even owns their own glass manufacturer. Uh, of course thing. they do. And uh, of course they do. And But the, but the end he said, and he put on a smile, I'll never forget that. He said, Lens, you're absolutely right. We just uh, produced these lightweight glass bottles, and maybe this is a good way to launch them with, with the chateau. I said, hey, now we are brothers again, you know? <laughs> uh, and first he was grilling me and said, oh, boo, uh, you know, people love this this heavy bottles because it signals quality. Yes. And I said, no, no, it signals macho, yeah? Nothing else. Yes. Because talk to a woman and she's not impressed with a big bottle, yeah? <laughs> um, and, um, and therefore, it's a, it's a very, very good process, and there's much, much more to come. For instance, for my new top wine for Purple Air, mm-hmm. um, I had the chance to, to get uh, you know nice wooden cases like Opus One and the rest of the gang. And at the end, I decided for a cardboard because it's much better uh, for logistics, it's lighter, it's much more eco-friendly, and I'm super happy with it. And alas, my friends, I have the first cases now in, in Europe, and they are really happy because it's, oh my God, uh, we have cardboard. You know, this is easy to dispose. Yeah. And a, a wooden case, you know. So, yeah. And the wooden, ca- the wooden cases, I'll be honest, are, are nice to have for decoration, but I mean, they're heavier. Yeah, they're but there's so much, def- uh, there's only so much decoration cases you can 100%. Uh, 100%. So maybe one day we'll see uh, you leading the, leading the charge to get ultra premium Chinese wine in bag and box. Never. Really? No. But it's such an eco-friendly way of transporting No, 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 no. This is not eco-friendly. But you cannot store it. The shelf life is, is you know, as we know, one year. Okay, maybe maybe, the, maybe the, the rosé and the... No, never. Okay, never? Okay. <laughs> no, we are shut No, 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 no. no, it, no it's, it's very fair from, from your side. But uh, I take your point. But we are Chateau and, and we have a certain quality of the image to defend. Yes. But first to build and then to defend. And I'm not going to wreck it with... Too innovative packaging. Although I'm always looking for new stuff, yeah, and for new ideas. But I think bag in a box is maybe a little bit too cheap. Okay, fair enough. So, the, so, so your your eco friendliness does have a line with image, but I think that's the case with most, no, for sure. But I I, did, I, t- I tend to think that a glass bottle is more eco friendly than a plastic bag with aluminium. Okay, to my knowledge, I tell you. Mm-mm. Okay, so we got to come up with a biodegradable bag and box, then we'll come to you and uh, and maybe we'll have another show conversation. Me, show me, <laughs> show me. Um, okay, I, I guess yeah. just um, before we wrap up, one thing that I've always had a, a hard time wrapping my my head around, especially making wine in China, and given that the Chinese market seems to be gravitating towards red wines and bigger red wines. When you're in China, is there a certain style of cuisine or dish that these wines go better with? Or is it a bit of a challenge to talk about wine and food pairings when you're dealing with people in China? Uh, Well, wine and food pairing in in China today is a non-starter because... uh, uh, when you have a typical Chinese meal in front of you, you have a round table with the lazy suit turning, 15 people sitting around, and you pick what you want. So uh, that's why wine and food pairing is, is, is difficult per se. But having said that, I my entire life, I always try to make wines which are food-friendly anyway. So take my white Cabernet. This fits almost any food you can think of. Totally. Uh, because it has enough fat, it has enough acidity, it has all the elements, it's fruit-driven, so it, it, it fits, you know, beef dishes, uh, pork dishes, uh, you name it, yeah, and everything on, on a Chinese table. It even goes very well with with, with all the veg stuff, because I'm a big veggie fan, uh, in China in particular, because they cook the, the thing differently than we. we. We cook them to death, and they, they make it really crispy. 
Uh, but I like my steak as well, so don't 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 worry. But uh, oh, you, you know what? I th- I think I think it's perfectly fair. The, the the people who are unapologetic red meat eaters, it's another thing where you can take it a little bit too far. In our house, we cook vegetarian once or twice a week now, and it's not by choice. I'm still a red blooded Canadian from Saskatchewan who's proud of our our, our prairie beef, but. I, I think we're well past the point of making fun of vegetarians. We spent a lot of time talking about the environment. We're moving in a direction where not only is it going to become necessary to focus on a more veg- vegetable-based diet, but if we want to make sure that as people who enjoy red meat, we can still enjoy it in the future, we need to start making changes now. Yeah, we have to be much more conscious of, uh, about what we eat. We'd rather eat more quality and less of it. I think then, yes. then everything's fine. I'm working on know? that. <laughs> I think we all are. Yeah, no, no, we all, we all are. At my age, you, you better watch it. Yeah. No, but just to to finish my point on on food friendliness. But even my reds are absolutely food friendly. They are not too tart. They are not too tannic. They are soft. They are friendly wines, as Bob Mondavi always told us. Please make friendly wines as opposed to cerebral wines. And and hence, I don't have any problems with food pairing in China or outside of China. Okay, that's that, that's cool, and I do find it interesting to say like as a concept, wine and food pairing is, is is a non-starter. But at the same time, you know the reason why you've got this blonde noir cab sauve, like that's perfect for a meal, a meal like that, the lazy susan, the shared plates, and the and the camaraderie, and not have to be fussy about your wine and food pairings. And yep. and it is a challenge, I'm sure, as a, a winemaker as well as it is as a sommelier or as someone who loves to cook to find that perfect bottle on the table. But uh, I think the fact that your your tannin integration on all these wines is just outstanding. Like it's it's really really well done. And uh, I mean, it's it's something Michael and I have said on the podcast before. If you've got wine and food on a table and you don't like how one tastes with the other, then don't do it. Just set your wine glass aside because it'll go great for dessert. Absolutely. Yeah. Yep. Absolutely. Yeah. We were talking earlier, unrelated to the food, but I think would be interesting for the people that listen to the podcast here. You know, in Ontario, we have. VQA and that sets the standard for quality and growing and how we make wine here. Yeah. Lens obviously comes from many, many, many generations in Europe making wine under very strict rules and regs that have become what they are. Yeah. But earlier today, Lens, you were telling me how really there are no rules in China at all, period, full stop. And so it might be interesting just to talk a little bit about that component and how you're Working within that, yeah, I mean, oh, uh, Andrew, you're throwing you're throwing your your own guest under the bus. No, because no, no, only no, because no, he no, set no, it up no, earlier today. No, otherwise, no, 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 no. It's interesting. I think it's a very important point because China is so new as a wine producing country that they they, they maybe they forgot so far to to give it, this industry regulations, official regulations. So what we do, we follow uh, my European, Austrian, German, French regulations, if you like. So I follow EU regulations. And, and that's what I've done my entire life, and that's what I intend to do in China as well, to the max, because what we have to build is trust and credibility from China to the rest of the world. Every wine producer has to do this, and hence, when you look at our bottles, we have this stamp here, and it says in, in three languages, in Chinese, in English, and in French, mise en bouteille au château, estate bottled. Yep. And as long as you have this, uh, and my signature on the back of the label, uh, together with my other colleagues uh, in winemaking. Okay. This is 100% uh, following European regulations, and it's 100% Chateau produced and bottled at the Chateau. I think this is very, very important that this is uh, guaranteed by real people. Of course, it's a, tr- a trust issue, but I have a reputation to lose uh, on a global basis, so I would not fool around with this, and I have fun really following the rules and and it's easy because i get the perfect grape so so what the heck it's it's not well, really are, very, are there very are there concerns then with building the reputation especially domestically in, in china about dealing with uh counterfeiting not at all because uh this is past okay this was until five years ago it must have been a nightmare but by then, I, I wasn't doing too much in China, so I didn't realize myself what's going on. But talking to the likes of Chances, she said at a certain point a couple of years ago, every second bottle in China is fake, which I think was exaggerated. But I think the government itself has done a tremendous job in, in fighting that uh, uh, counterfeiting. And, and from our side, I've never heard a single case that a consumer was complaining in China or outside of China. Uh, we are too new. We we were under the radar until recently. 
uh, in export, we are not under the radar, but in China, because it's such a big people. Yeah. And if you do 300,000 bottles in, in, in China, yeah, that's uh, nothing. You, you, you're really small at this stage, but we, we're growing and, and we are getting hurt. And, and especially the Psalms of the top hotels of the country and, and, and the, the, the buyers, they, they know exactly who we are because I met them more or less the last couple of months or one and a half years. And uh, so we're making progress in this regard as well. Well, this is a hell of a way to make an appearance. Is there anything else you wanted to touch on before I sign off? Uh, as Robert Mondavi would say, uh, don't forget it's just the beginning and the best is yet to come. Thank you so much, Lens and Andrew. That's, uh, like I said, hell of a way to make an, uh, make an appearance. So thank you so much for sharing these wines and making the time to come speak with me. Fantastic. Uh, Michael, you missed out. Andre, it sounds like you enjoyed these wines. I did. I mean... The Grand Vin that pushes about $134, I'm not sure I'm convinced to spend that money on the top tier wine, but for $25, picking up uh, an interesting bottle of Cabernet Sauvignon from China, it, it's not too much to ask. And the wine's tasty. It's very, very tasty. I'm not going to even say drinkable. Like It's a good tasting wine. It's a good tasting wine. I had actually also read uh, an article in the Globe and Mail that said the same thing, so... Maybe you uh, kind of have the same taste as Chris Waters. Well, that's pretty high praise, considering I think in the last podcast you said that I don't know how to taste wine. At least in our last two thumbs up podcast, you said that. Well, that I am uh, convinced of, but now I'm you know trying to trying <laughs> to backpedal maybe, or at least hand you a backhanded compliment, or I really don't know what I'm trying to do, Andre, except say uh, I guess I missed out on trying these Chinese wines. As long as there's no coronavirus in it, we're great. You know, I went the entire interview without making that awful joke, but I mean, I'm sure the audience missed you. Well, I'm telling you, it's a big deal here in Italy at the moment, so... Yes, that's, yes, that's true. That is no laughing matter. Um, but I guess since we're getting a little bit off topic, I'll just wrap this up because I know it's getting pretty late there, and uh, you're getting back to Toronto later this week, so we will be hopefully connecting in the next week or so to wrap up some other content. I have another great interview lined up for while you're gone. Um, and just remember, you can... And I th- Go ahead, Michael. And I think we have an interview with somebody from Taylor Fladgate too, don't we? We do. I don't, I don't think that's coming up for a little while, isn't it? It's getting close, though. You've lost, you've lost track of all time. Closer. Yeah, you've lost track of all time. That's what's happened right now. Yeah. Yeah. Anyway, subscribe to yeah. the podcast on iTunes. Leave a review. Um, remember to check out our Patreon slash Two Guys Talking Wine. And uh, Michael, take it away. Uh, I'm Michael Pincus of MichaelPincusWineReview.com. How do they say goodnight in Italian? Uh, buonanotte. Thanks for listening. Please subscribe to Two Guys Talking Wine on iTunes. This podcast is made possible thanks to our supporters on Patreon. A big thank you goes out to Adnan Isel, owner of Isellers Estate Winery. You can visit them at 615 Concession 5 Road in Niagara-on-the-Lake or check out their website at isellers.ca. Find out how you can support us like Adnan by visiting patreon.com slash twoguystalkingwine.